Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Genesis chapter 3. This is a passage that we looked at a few, mo- a few months ago when we were looking through our church's core values and we examined the core value of biblical fidelity and why we cherish that as a church. This is the passage that we turned to and that we looked at. But tonight we're going to do it by squaring up on this theme of temptation. And we're going, to identify, we're going to explore this passage once again, really zeroing in on that dynamic. A guy by the name of Dr. Russell Moore wrote a book on the theme of temptation called Tempted and Tried. And in it, he, there's a subtitle of one of his chapters that he calls, or basically just asserts it straight up, you are on the verge of wrecking your life, especially if you do not know it. You are on the verge of wrecking your life, especially if you don't know it. And then he would go on to illustrate that dynamic with, uh, by telling a story or describing what it is like for cows being led to the slaughter. And I'm going to share his words with you. And let me apologize in advance to our vegetarian friends who are here, because this may be one of the reasons why you are. Godspeed. This is what he says. He says, for a long time, cattle workers would forcefully push and prod cows into the slaughterhouse. For good reason, the cows would resist and the whole operation would be extremely difficult to carry out until one specific scientist came along and said, no, no, no. The way to slaughter cows is to make them feel like everything is great as they enter the slaughterhouse. Keep the scenery the same as it is in the most peaceful moments in a cow's life. And so the scientists began to experiment, not with prodding cows off a truck, but by leading them quietly onto a ramp where they walk through a squeeze chute, a gentle pressure device designed to mimic a mother's nuzzling touch. Then the cattle continued down the, continued down the ramp onto a smoothly curbing path. No sudden turns, a path designed to give the cows a sense that they are going home. And as they mosey along the path, they don't even notice when, the, when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slowly, gradually lifts them upward. And then, in the twinkling of an eye, a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right, bet- right between their eyes. They're transitioned from livestock to meat, and they're never aware enough to even to even be alarmed by any of it. And I share that image with you this evening because I want to make it as clear as possible. I want to make it as clear as possible to each and every person within the sound of my voice that there are crafty forces afoot right now in every moment of every day scheming in such a way to lure us into places we do not want to go. That you are on the verge of ruining your life, especially if you're unaware of it. And this is true of each and every one of us. And I hope to feel the dynamic of that reality in my life every moment of every day. I want to be aware of the fact, as a a pastor living in the city and serving you in the ways that I am privileged to serve, I want to be aware of the fact that I am susceptible to temptation, I am susceptible to sin, I am susceptible to self-destruction. 
that we are all open to this dynamic. So we want to be keenly aware 24-7 that it doesn't take much for us to be caught off guard and lured into a place and into positions where we do not want to go and we do not want to be. We want to be aware of the fact that one fleeting moment could wreak spiritual havoc on our lives. One fleeting moment could wreak spiritual havoc on our families. One fleeting moment could wreak spiritual havoc upon our church. One fleeting moment could reap spiritual havoc upon the honor of our God. So I want to think about this dynamic with some warning. I want us to think about this dynamic ultimately with some hope as we are thinking sober-mindedly about temptation and how it can can introduce destruction to our lives. We want to think well about what it is and, and then look to our God to see if there's a way through temptation. Is there a way to triumph over temptation when it comes our way? Because the reality is the pattern that you're about to see laid out in Genesis chapter 3 is a pattern that repeats itself in our lives all the time where temptation comes to us in similar ways, where sin manifests itself in our lives in similar ways, where we find ourselves in places and positions where we do not want to be and where we do not want to go, all as the result of this scheming opposition that is, that is waging war essentially against our lives. So Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at this theme of temptation and notice what goes down in verse 1. Verse 1 is kind of strange. Understand that when the, when the original writers of the Old Testament, when this book was brought into being, that there were no chapters and verses. There was no chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. There were, no, there were no verses 1, 2, and 3. It was just text strung together in a coherent and cohesive manner, in a coherent and cohesive fashion. And so knowing that can, might surprise us to see this go down in verse 1 of chapter 3. That suddenly and surprisingly out of nowhere, there's this serpent who slithers in to the Garden of Eden and he begins to whisper lies to Adam and Eve. And it's surprising because of the way chapter 2 ends. Chapter 2 ends with God forming the first marriage between man and woman, establishing that covenantal relationship shared between them in the garden so that man and woman enjoyed one another, man and woman enjoyed fellowship with their God. It was a beautiful covenantal dynamic at the end of Genesis chapter 2. And you get this beautiful description of verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. They were safe and secure. They were vulnerable and cared for. They had no concerns in the world. Everything was there. And they were enjoying one another as they enjoyed the presence of their God. And so it kind of surprises us to read in verse 1 that this serpent kind of slithers in and and he's described as being a part of creation that was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he slithers in and he begins to speak to the woman sudden, suddenly, surprisingly, and without warning. The serpent shows up in the Garden of Eden. Now, let me encourage you to think about this. If, now, one of the concerns in Genesis chapter 3 isn't the concern that some of you might have right now. Some of you are wondering, what did, where did the serpent come from? What is the origin of evil? And you want to explore those questions, but that's not the concern of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 has other concerns, so it doesn't answer the question about the origins of evil, saying where does Satan and the serpent come from? Who is the serpent and what he's about? 
To answer those questions, you have to look in other places in the Bible, places like Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. You have to go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, where we are told in no uncertain terms that the serpent was Satan. He was the accuser. He was the liar. He was the deceiver. He was this fallen angel that, that rebelled against God at some point in time in ancient past. He, he Due to his own self-generated pride, he pushed back against the glory of God. And God hurled him down from heaven, kicked him out, exiled him. And along with him and his fall came about, according to Ezekiel and Isaiah, about a third of the angels that were dwelling in heaven at that point. We know them to be demons right now. And that's what we would refer to a fallen angel. And I know saying that raises other questions in our minds. Well, are we getting weird tonight? And because anytime we hear talk about Satan and demons and spiritual opposition, some objections come into our minds and we don't think well about Satan and demons. We don't, we don't think sober-mindedly about the reality of spiritual opposition. But let me, let me throw this out there. If the serpent was able to wreak havoc in Eden, we should never be surprised when he's able to wreak havoc in the life of the church. We cannot think, just because we're a part of the church, or me, just because I'm a leader in a church, we cannot think that there's no way the enemy can get in and begin to wreak havoc in our lives and in our church. If he can do it in Eden, he can do it here. Which is all the more reason why we have to explore this passage to figure out, okay, how do we guard against it? How do we recognize his schemes? How do we identify his tactics? How can we resist him and overcome him through our faith in Jesus? This passage helps us in that way. So we want to look at the serpent, and although there's all kinds of questions that we want to ask, we want to deal with this passage as it is. And here you have the serpent, later in the Bible we come to know is Satan, and he's a crafty creature. He's shrewd. Think about the way he's approaching Adam and Eve in this moment. Think about the craft of his temptation. He's so shrewd. He's so strategic. He's so wise. Later in the New Testament, we read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we need to learn in some way to stand against the schemes or the craftiness of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need to consider 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Think well about this reality. Let the Bible inform your worldview as it relates to spiritual opposition and the pattern of temptation and the way sin is solicited from our lives. Let's be sober-minded. Let's think well. But then he also says, let's be watchful. Let's pay attention. Let's don't be caught off guard. Let's not be surprised by his schemes when they inevitably arise in our lives. So be sober-minded, be watchful. And then Peter would write, your adversary, your opposer, your enemy, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, seeking to destroy our faith, our joy, our life, our love in Christ. This is what he's targeting, and he targets it shrewdly. He targets it with much craftiness. Notice what he does in this text. And we want to see what he does because elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, we are told, do not let yourself be outwitted by Satan. Don't let yourself be duped. Don't be naive about his schemes and his tactics. There is one who opposes you and everything you are about in Christ. So we don't want to be outwitted. So we want to think about his strategy. We want to think about his approach. It's not unlike a major league baseball pitcher. 
in a couple of days. My favorite sporting event of the year, one of them, next to the NBA Finals, is the World Series. And I'm excited about it, even though the Mariners aren't in it. You know, it's a bummer. I don't know if they'll ever get in it, but hopefully one day. But, but it's between the Houston Astros and the Los Angeles Dodgers. The ace pitcher for the Dodgers is a guy named Clayton Kershaw. He's a phenom. He's an incredible pitch, pitcher. And right now, as the Astros are getting ready to face the Dodgers, what are they doing? Well, they're reading scouting reports on Kershaw. What are they doing? They're watching tape on Kershaw. They're trying to identify his tendencies so that when they step into the batter's box, they're not deceived by his curveball. They're not knocked off balance by his inside fastball or the way that he can break it off outside. They're studying the scheme and the tendencies and the strategy of the pitcher so that when they step into the batter's box, they are prepared to hit. They are prepared to engage in that moment. And it's interesting. One of the things about pitching in baseball, they're There's a lot of ways that you want to strategize to be an effective pitcher, to knock a batter off balance and to strike them out or to get them out. You want to do it by making sure you're moving the ball around the plate. You want to go inside. You want to go outside. You don't want to just throw it down one lane, one channel every time you pitch the ball. But not only do you want to move the ball inside and outside, you want to change speeds. You want to throw some pitches harder than others, so you throw a fastball maybe 95, 96 miles per hour, but then you want to throw a change up, try to get it under 80, 78, 79 miles per hour. And the change of speeds throws the batter off balance. That change of speed messes with the batter. But there's one other thing. There's one other thing that a pitcher tries to do to be effective against those who are stepping in the batter's box. And that is a pitcher's job, if they're really thinking it through and they're really tuned in to what they can do, they... One of their goals is to change the eye level of the hitter, meaning they don't want to just throw the ball inside and outside fast and slow. They want to throw the ball high and they want to throw the ball low. They want to take the eye level or change the eye level of the hitter so that the hitter might not know where to look as the ball is coming out of the pitcher's hand. And I essentially think that's what the enemy is seeking to do in Genesis chapter 3. He's changing the eye level. He's getting Adam and Eve to turn their attention away from their creator, to turn their attention away from their provider, to turn their attention away from the one who loved them enough to make them and to give them all that they were enjoying in Eden, turning the, changing their eye level so that they're no longer seeing God appropriately. They're no longer seeing God faithfully. They're turning their eyes towards other things. And you will see that once their eyes are off of God, things begin to go south. So notice how he's changing their eye level in this text. You see, the craft of temptation, when it starts right off the bat, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he slithered in and said to the woman, Did God actually say, stop right there. Did God actually say, notice how he's changing the eye level. If you've noticed, as we've journeyed through the book of Genesis up to this point, Genesis chapter 1, we saw an emphasis on what? We saw an emphasis on the greatness of God, which is why the word Elohim, translated God, is used all throughout that chapter. Elohim, the powerful creator, speaking everything into existence, emphasizing his greatness and his power, his sovereignty. When you get into Genesis chapter 2, there's a, we're zoomed in and we get it, we're told another title or another descriptor of who God is. So that in Genesis chapter 2, we don't just find Elohim or God being used in reference to God. There's another word used. Check it out in verse 4 of chapter 2. 
It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the who, the Lord God, made the earth and the heavens. And so another name is brought in, Lord, which is Yahweh. It it is the name that was given to Moses when he was hanging out by the burning bush. It's a name speaking to God's covenantal identity, that the creator of the universe is a personal God. The really big God is also a close God. The powerful God is also a caring God. That's the emphasis when you see Lord God put together all throughout Genesis chapter 2. And as you read through the chapter, what do you see? You see that show up 11 times. Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. The sovereign creator, the personal covenant keeper. This is who God is. But when the enemy starts to speak, what does he do? He changes the eye level. He turns Adam and Eve, he turns Eve's attention away from Lord God and focuses simply on God. And essentially what he does is subtly undermines the goodness of God. He subtly undermines the goodness of God, and he does this by depersonalizing his character. By dropping that name, all of a sudden he's put distance between Eve and her creator, between Eve and the Lord God. She's not thinking well about who God is in this moment. And we know that because when Eve responds, she doesn't bring God's personal name back into the conversation. She starts talking about God in the same way that the serpent was talking about God. And it's never good in theology to follow on the hills of the serpent, right? You don't want to echo what he's saying. You want to immediately run to the reality of who God shows himself to be. But she's not doing it. And as a result, the serpent is subtly undermining God's goodness in her life. The serpent is depersonalizing God's character. Yeah, your God may be really, really big, but he doesn't really... He's too big to really be concerned about you and the life that you're really living here in Eden. And so much so that I'm going to bring in an alternative solution to some of the cravings that you have in your life. So he undermines the goodness of God by depersonalizing his character, dropping the name Lord. But he also does it by distorting God's provision. Notice what he says next. It says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And with that statement, he distorts God's provision. Where does the accent fall in his words? It falls on the negative. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? It's not what God said. God told them in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, you can eat of every tree in the garden except this one. There's one tree that is off limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is yours to enjoy. Feast, engage, partake. But this one tree, avoid that one. But what does the serpent do? He subtly undermines the goodness of God by putting the emphasis on the negative. Saying, did God surely say you can't eat of every tree in the Garden of Eden? And then Eve follows suit again. When you notice her response, she says, you know, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That much is true. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That too is true, but notice what she adds. She says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Neither shall you touch it. Did God say anything about touching it? No. Now, there's thoughts on that. Well, maybe that, that, that's good. That was a guard for her. Why would she touch something that she would be tempted by? So maybe she's just trying to put a barrier and a buffer to protect her from partaking of that tree. What I think is going on is that she's following suit with the serpent's emphasis on the negative. So she starts emphasizing the negative too by exaggerating that which God said. 
Whereas the enemy exaggerates what God said. You can't have, you can't have any fruit from any tree in the garden. She exaggerates by saying, no, no, we just can't eat from this one, but we also can't touch it. And so she's following suit with the exaggeration. It's the subtle undermining of the goodness of God. And it's a very effective strategy. He's casting God as though he's this cosmic Debbie Downer who doesn't want pleasure and joy and life to be enjoyed in Eden. And the moment that wedge is put in the door, it's there for, for everything to be blown wide open. So he subtly undermines the goodness of God. That's part of his temptation. But then next, he overtly denies the judgment of God. Now, this one's pretty heavy. The serpent overtly denies the judgment of God. Go back to what he says in verse 1. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then the woman responds, coming to that point where she says, unless you die, you can't eat it, you can't touch it unless you die. But then notice what the serpent says. And he speaks with absolute confidence. He asserts this word. He speaks with more confidence in this moment than Eve has been speaking up to now. Listen to what he says, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. What is he doing? He's overtly denying the judgment of God. I find this to be incredibly instructive. And I find this to be a, a huge warning to us tonight. The first doctrine in the Bible to be overtly questioned, rejected, and denied is the doctrine of what? It's the doctrine of judgment. The first teaching to be rejected in the world is the teaching that God will judge the world or that there are consequences for the way in which we respond or choose not to respond to the Creator who made us and to the ways in which He reveals Himself to us. The first doctrine rejected is the doctrine of judgment. And this is the same doctrine that is being rejected and overtly denied in many places in the city and around the world today. Anytime a guy like me who teaches the Bible, who leads a church, anytime we give people the impression that judgment isn't a reality, and we encourage people to live as if there are no consequences for the lives that we live in this world. There's no consequences for how we receive and respond to God's revelation. Anytime we give people the impression that judgment isn't a reality, anytime we do that, we are, we are echoing and imitating the serpent. We are relaying the original lie in the Garden of Eden. You will not die if you disobey God. It is the most loveless thing a guy like me or any person purporting to be a follower of Jesus can do. One of the most loveless things we can do is coddle a person with the ignorance that judgment isn't coming. Or to pretend that there are no things as consequences when sin creeps in and, part, and our lives begin to be characterized and defined by that which God doesn't affirm or approve of or or tell us to do. Rejecting this doctrine was the original lie. And any time it is rejected or denied today, we're just rehearsing an ancient lie. And we've got to be very, very careful as it relates to that dynamic. 
The serpent is overtly denying the judgment of God. So let's think about this temptation pattern here. Temptation always sounds like this. Anytime you're being tempted or opposed by the enemy, it will always sound something like this. Your God is not good. It will always sound, your God doesn't want what's best for you. It will always sound like there are no consequences for the choices you're making right now. There's nothing serious going to happen to you or to anybody else around you if you give in to this particular temptation. That's what temptation always sounds like. Your God is not good. Your God does not want what's best for you. Your God is not going to judge you. He's too big to really worry about the little things that you tend to be wrestling with or fretting, fretting over in this life, in this world. That's the original temptation. That's the pattern of temptation. And Satan here is speaking in, this, in such a way to undermine the goodness of God and to overtly deny the judgment to the judgment of God. Now, what's interesting about this temptation, one of the ways that you can discern between the difference between the voice of God and the voice of the enemy in your life is, is if the voice of God does what? If you look at Genesis chapter 1, when God begins to speak, what starts happening? Life is created and order is formed. What happens when the enemy speaks? The exact opposite effect happens when the serpent speaks in this moment. He's not speaking order into the situation. He is not speaking life into the situation. Everything that he is saying is designed to introduce chaos into creation. It is designed to unravel the reality that God had set up in the Garden of Eden. So how do you discern the difference between a truth and a lie, between something God says and something that the enemy is saying? Well, one, you filter it through the scriptures. And as you filter it through the scriptures, what do you do? And you're thinking, okay, does this word bring order and life to me? Or does does this word bring chaos and disorder to me? Does this word affirm what God desires for me? Or does it deny what God desires for me? And so you discern the difference between truth and error. Does it bring order and life, or does it bring chaos and ultimately death, which is where this passage goes? And so when we find ourselves in those moments being tempted and trying to discern the difference between the voice of the enemy and the voice of our God, we can ask ourselves a simple question in how we respond to that moment. In every temptation, try to ask yourself, in this moment, at this time, am I going to treat God as my rival Or am I going to trust God as my father? Will I treat him as a rival who's not good and doesn't want what's best for me? Someone who's going to judge or someone who's not really going to judge me because he's not not really concerned about his glory and his holiness in the world. Am I going to treat him as a rival or am I going to trust him as my father? That's essentially the question that's being posed in the exchange between the serpent and Eve. The serpent is making God out to be her rival. And as a result, her and Adam failed to trust God as their father. Now, many of you, no doubt, have probably seen the movie, Disney's version of The Little Mermaid. Disney's movie of The Little Mermaid, you know, that's a story about this young mermaid who's, has li- who's living life under the sea, but she's not content with life under the sea. She wants much more. So she starts looking beyond the sea. She wants life outside of the sea, above the sea, and... She tells her dad of her desires, and her dad doesn't get excited about it. In fact, he, he kind of discourages her desire, telling her just to forget that dream, forget that ambition, but she can't. So what does she do? She goes and makes a deal with the witch, and the witch gives her legs, and she goes out on land, and she meets a prince. They fall in love, and they get married and live happily ever after. And it's a wonderful picture, according to Disney, of a person chasing their dreams 
without giving any regard to their father's wishes or to their father's desires. You can ignore them. You can reject them. You can go your own way. You'll be happy in the end, and all will be made right. That's the story of the Little Mermaid, according to Disney. But have you ever read the origins of the Little Mermaid? Have you ever read the real story of the Little Mermaid? The real story, written by a guy named Hans Christian Andersen. And the original story is a lot darker than that. The original story follows that same trajectory. There's this little mermaid who disregards her father's counsel. Don't worry about life beyond the sea. She disregards her father's words. She goes about her way. She goes above the sea. She falls in love with the prince. But what happens in that story is the prince doesn't love her back. The prince doesn't love her back, and she, he actually falls in love with another woman. She begins to covet this relationship. She's devastated. She goes back to the witch that gives her legs, and she gives, him an, gives her a knife and encourages her and counsels her to go. And, you know, well, if you really want to be free from the pain you feel for having been rejected, go and kill him. And she's torn between these two decisions. She's broken over, trying to wrestle with it. And what does it do? Well... She gets to the point where she can't win in either direction, so instead, the story, and I'm assuming all of our kids are gone, Little Mermaid killed herself. That was her way out. So Disney says, follow your dreams and all will be okay. The original story says, listen to your dad, right? <laughs> Trust your father. That's essentially what's going down here in the Garden of Eden. We live in a Disneyland, a Disney World type of world where everyone is saying, do what you want, follow your desires. Who cares about how they are satisfied or fulfilled? Disregard the creator who gave you those desires and who wired them within you. Go your own way. All will be good in the end. But what do we do when we listen to our father? We come to the book of Genesis. We listen to our origin story, the original, and we discover, no, that there's more to it than this. We, we, we are not the captain of our own ship. We cannot engage in an autonomous life free of consequences and everything will be happy in the end. No, what is needed is a return to the God who created us and a return to the God who redeemed us. It's, we want to approach life in this world, not in a Disney World type of way. We want to do it in a way that says, I'm going to listen to my father. And when push comes to shove and temptation is coming my way, I'm not going to treat him as my rival. I'm going to trust him as my father. I'm going to listen to him. Well, Adam and Eve do not listen to him in this moment. And as a result, they, are, they find themselves in a downward spiral of sin. Which that's kind of the ping pong match that is happening. The serpent is tempting them and they are sinning in response. And there's a few things about how temptation can give birth to sin in our lives. It doesn't have to, but it can. And when it does give birth to sin in our lives, it tends to take a few kinds of forms. Consider this dynamic. The spiral of sin. You have Satan tempting Eve and Adam sinning. And sin then begins as we entertain unbelief. Sin begins as we entertain unbelief. So when the serpent slithers up and he speaks to the woman, the woman should have shut the conversation down right then and there. Should have just shut it down, turned, walked away, end the conversation. Don't dialogue with the deceiver. Don't dialogue with the enemy. Anytime you hear a lie, you want to dismiss it. You want to reject it. You want to resist it and walk away from it. She did not resist the devil in this moment, and he did not flee from her. Instead, she engaged the conversation. 
And as a result of engaging the conversation, what is she doing but entertaining unbelief? She's entertaining the thoughts. The the door is creaking open for sin to be swell up in her life because she's entertaining unbelief. She's engaging in the conversation with the enemy. You know, sin begins with these types of baby steps, these types of, as we entertain unbelief in our lives and we start rationalizing with ourselves. Well, I know the scriptures say this, but, you know, I think this, and I can see a way through it this way. Well, all you have to do is get another perspective on the issue, and then you can find a way out. And we start rationalizing temptation in our lives in order to justify sin in our lives all the while. All the while, what are we doing but entertaining unbelief? And it's a slippery slope. It's like going to the store and saying, I'm not, I'm not going to buy a Coke because I know Coke is bad for me, so I'm going to rationalize it by buying a Diet Coke. As if a Diet Coke is any better for you than Coke itself. You might say, well, it says diet on the label. I can rationalize that. I can get around that. That won't be as bad for me. All Diet Coke has done is it's removed the real sugar and replaced it with artificial sugar, and so it's kind of pick your poison. Neither one of them are good for you. So we don't want to rationalize the choice and entertain unbelief by playing a game of justification and rationalization, yet that's essentially what we do when we entertain unbelief in our lives. We're trying to rationalize a course of action that our desires want to take. And when our desires take that action, it gives birth to sin. And according to James, that sin then leads to death. It leads to destruction. It leads to disintegration. That is, in a myriad of ways. We could talk about that in another Another message. So sin begins as we entertain unbelief, but then sin, if you look at what happens in verse, verses 5, 6, and 7, you have this moment where sin exchanges God's glory. Sin exchanges God's glory. Look at how he, he's adjusted her eye level. He has her looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And notice what goes down in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So her eye level has been changed. She's no longer thinking about God rightly. She's looking at this tree that God said don't eat from. And she sees on this tree fruit that is good for food, that is a delight to the eyes, and that is, a des- that is desired to make one wise. Essentially, what you have with the tree of the nods of good and evil is the first idol in the Bible. Where she is exchanging God's glory for the glory that is being offered to her from this tree. So you get to Romans chapter 1, and what, how is the fall described? Well, the fall is described as, as mankind exchanging the glory of God for the glory of creation. This is the first instance of that. She's looking for this tree to satisfy three cravings that she has, three cravings that God wired in her. A physical craving for food. A, an aesthetic craving or a craving for beauty. It was a delight to the eyes. The fruit was attractive. And then there was a spiritual craving there. She said this fruit is to be desired to make one wise. There was a spiritual benefit to it. And so these cravings that God had given to her, these cravings that God intended to satisfy for her, she looks to the tree and she says, okay, I'm not going to look to God's glory to do that for me. I'm going to look to this tree. I'm going to exchange glory. I'm going to look to this created thing to do for me what my God wants and intends to do for me. 
My God will provide me with food. My God will satisfy my craving for beauty. My God will give me spiritual wisdom as I learn to what? Fear him and honor him and obey him and adore him in Eden. Only she doesn't do that. And so she exchanges glory. And what do you have there? But you have a picture of sin. Sin happens every time we seek to satisfy a God-given craving through a God-denying means. When we take the good cravings, the good desires that God gives us, and we try to usurp his role in satisfying them and his way in satisfying them, and we seek to satisfy them ourselves through God-denying means. This is essentially what we do in sin. Sin exchanges glory. Imagine yourself in a car and God is driving the car. Nothing cheesy like Jesus take the wheel. You're just in a car. God's driving the, driving the car down the interstate. And, and you're hungry. You have some cravings that you want your God to. You think your God is going to take you to a place where he will satisfy those cravings and, and fulfill them for you. And you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. But the satisfaction doesn't seem to come. And so what do you do? You grab the wheel. You yank it out of his hands and you take the first exit you come to. Only you don't know the whole picture. You don't know where he was taking you. You don't know when you were going to arrive. So in impatience, you grab the wheel, you yank it out of his hands, and you take the next exit. Only that exit spits you out on this podunk town with a broke-down gas station. It's the only store in sight. So you pull into the parking lot. You run, hoping to satisfy your hunger. And what do you do? You look at the counter, and you see a shriveled-up hot dog. And it's rotating in that thing. It's probably been there for three years. And you have this shriveled up hot dog that you are now going to eat because you weren't willing to wait a little bit longer and to trust God's way and to trust God's wisdom. Oblivious and ignorant, perhaps, of the fact that just one mile down the road, God was about to take an exit that would have satisfied your hunger with healthy food, with tasty food, something other than a shriveled up hot dog spinning around at a gas station. This is essentially what happens when we become discontent and we begin to covet things that we don't have and the cravings that we have or we're not looking to God to satisfy them. We yank the will, we take control, and what happens is we exchange his glory. We exchange his glory, and it's a devastating, devastating event. But then there's one other dynamic you have about sin in here. Not only is it entertaining unbelief and exchanging God's glory, sin here solicits self-centeredness. And here's what I mean by that. When you look at what's going down, notice she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, that is a, a striking statement. Her husband was with her, and he ate. What was he doing the whole time? He was just standing idly by in silence, listening to the lies that the serpent was spitting at Eve and really spitting at both of them. Every you that you see in Satan's words is a plural you. He's speaking to both of them. But Eve's the one who's engaging. Adam is standing silently by. Essentially what Adam is doing is that temptation is soliciting the sin of self-centeredness from his life. He's so self-centered in this moment that he's unwilling to step in between the liar and his bride. He's unwilling to combat the lie of the enemy with the truth of his God. Why? Well, because he's curious to see what happens, it seems. Well, let's see what happens if she eats of the fruit. If she takes a bite and she doesn't die on the spot, then we don't really know what death is, actually. So I'll just kind of see what happens. And if I don't see anything bad happen, then I'll take the fruit and I'll eat it too. He's utterly self-centered in this moment leaving his wife out to dry, to face the lies of the enemy 
on her own. It's utterly spineless, abdicating his responsibility as the servant leader of that marriage, as the one who originally heard God's word in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the one who originally heard that word, sorry, verse 17, and he abdicates his responsibility. He doesn't step up. He doesn't step in between. He stands idly by. That's self-centeredness. Let me ask you. How often do you stand idly by when others are being lied to? Are you willing to step in between the lies of the enemy and the people who are being deceived? Are you willing to step up and step in between? One of the reasons we don't, don't, don't step up and we don't step in between is because we're so self-centered. We're too self-centered to do so. We think, well, if I step in between, then she might think I'm, bug, I'm butting into her business. And, or I might, you know, I might say something that may be truthful, but she might not take it the right way. And, and so I don't want to do that. So, so we're very self-centered. We're very self-protective. We're very self-preserving. And so a lot of times we stand idly by, refusing to combat the lies that other people are hearing because we want to not rock the boat for ourselves. And it's utterly callous. It's utterly loveless. It's an interesting dynamic in the New Testament. You get into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. Listen to what Paul says about this dynamic and the connection this has to the enemy's opposition. Listen to it. Ephesians chapter 4, therefore laying aside falsehood, that is getting rid of lies, speak truth. How do you combat falsehood? You speak truth. Who? Well, each one of you with his neighbor. You combat lies by speaking truth, each one of you too, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Just as Adam and Eve shared one flesh, he wasn't living out that one flesh union. He was letting her be tempted and to take a bite of the tree without intervening, without stepping in between. And, and Paul is saying, look, we are members of one another. We are part of the family of God, and we can't sit back and be idle when other people are listening to lies. We can't sit back when people are entertaining unbelief. We can't sit back in silence when others are exchanging God's glory. We can't sit back in self-centeredness when all of that is going down. He says, so you want to speak truth to one another. And then he goes on and says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Your silence in the face of lies, in the face of unbelief, in the, in the face of alternative glories, your silence in the face of that is self-centered. That's what the Bible describes as sin. So we don't want to stand idly by. We want to love one another well by having the awkward conversations about what is truth and what is false. By having the awkward conversations, hey, you're wasting your life seeking that craving. God's going to satisfy that craving in his timing and in his way. You don't have to go that route. You can wait, you can rest, you can trust. We can preserve life for one another by in stepping in between and intervening in those moments. But again, Adam didn't do that. He acted self-centeredly, and that introduced the crisis of our humanity, which is described in verse 7. The crisis of our humanity. Listen to, that. Listen to what goes down. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's the exact opposite of chapter 2, verse 25, isn't it? Their eyes are opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the crisis of the fallen human condition. Because temptation was launched and sin, a sinful response was given, it broke humanity. It created a crisis. And in this crisis, what is going down except that human beings sensed that they were no longer safe? 
They are saying, I'm no longer safe. It says their eyes are open and they both knew that they were naked. That safety and security in chapter 2, verse 25 is now erased. It's the reversal of what God set up. Now their eyes are opened. They know that they were naked. They are not safe and they are not secure. They are neither safe or secure. That's the crisis of, our human, of the human condition. We do not feel safe. We do not feel secure. And so what do we do? Well, we seek safety. We seek security in fig leaves. They sense this about themselves. They grab fig leaves and try to cover themselves up. They're exposed in that moment. A crisis has been created and covering is sought. But the problem in that moment is that the covering that they're seeking is not capable of bringing safety back to their lives. That covering that they're clinging to isn't capable of restoring security. Something's not right. Now they are living an ashamed life marked by guilt and fear. And and these fig leaves can't solve that problem. These fig leaves are inadequate coverings. You see, the crisis of humanity, our condition, is a condition where we are no longer safe or secure. And so we're constantly living our lives covered We cover ourselves with our religion. We cover ourselves with our accomplishments. We cover ourselves with our families. We cover ourselves with our um, activism. We, We cover ourselves with causes. We cover ourselves with all types of fig leaves that we're grasping from the created order because we want to feel safe and we want to feel secure. So we try to cover ourselves with all types of things. But one of the storylines of the Bible is that there is no covering in this world adequate to solve this crisis. And because of that, we have to keep going. You have to keep going through the storyline of the Bible. you got to love the fact that the Bible does not end at verse 7. But the Bible keeps going. In fact, it keeps going a long ways because there's a lot more pages in this book. There's more to the story. And the story doesn't end in crisis. The story doesn't end saying God handing humanity over in an entirely definitive sense. Well, now they're on their own. They're going to have to cover themselves all the days of their life. No, God promises as you read through this chapter, he's going to come and he's going to provide a better covering. And this is hinted at when you drop down to the end of verse 20. I'm sorry, the end of verse 21. After some consequences come down and God stays true to his word, verse 21, and the Lord God did what? He made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What is he doing? Where did he get garments of skin? Do you hear the echo of the gospel? Do you hear the whisper of Jesus? In order to get garments of skin, what did God have to do? God had to kill something. He had to sacrifice an animal to take those skins and to provide an alternative uh, covering to the fig leaves that Adam and Eve were clinging to. And in that moment, you get a hint of what is to come. When you come into the gospel, you get all the way to the moment when, when God himself comes to us in the person of Jesus and Jesus identifies with the human condition. He steps into our shoes, so to speak. He lives a life just like you and I. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The triumph of Christ in the face of temptation, that he identified with the human condition and endured temptation just like Adam and Eve did, just like you and I do. The difference is when Jesus identified with our condition and he became temptable, so to speak, this Jesus succeeded where everyone before him failed. This Jesus was able to be obedient in the face of temptation. 
There's a moment at the beginning of his story in the Gospels where he goes out in the wilderness and he's tempted after 40 days of prayer and fasting. And then the serpent, Satan, shows up and tempts him in every way that he tempts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But as he's enduring this temptation, we are told time and time again that Jesus resisted the devil. Jesus resisted temptation. Jesus succeeded where Adam and Eve failed. Jesus succeeded where you and I fell. So how do you and I find hope in the midst of temptation and sin? Where we don't try to cover ourselves up and pick ourselves up. What we do is we adjust our eye level. We put our eyes back on Jesus. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we consider the life that he lived. We consider the death that he died. We consider the fact that Jesus identified with us and he succeeded where we failed. So what do we do? We come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't stand a chance without you. All the things that I'm trying to cover myself with, the safety and security that I'm seeking in this life, they're inadequate. I need a better covering. And then as you turn your attention to Jesus, you adjust your eye level, you look in Jesus's direction. And what do you see? But when Jesus goes to the cross, the fact that he was obedient all the way to the point of death on a cross, what is he doing on the cross? Well, he's establishing a new covenant, isn't he? The covenant that was ruined in Genesis chapter 3, where man and woman were now naked and ashamed, not enjoying each other, not enjoying their God. What does Jesus restore on the cross where he establishes a new covenant? He says, I'm bringing you back into this thing so that you can have a safe and secure relationship with your God. And I'll go one step further. You can have a safe and secure with other people who are in Christ. This is the new covenant that we enjoy together. We can be utterly safe, utterly vulnerable, utterly exposed in all of our struggles with temptation and all of our hangups with sin in our lives. We can be honest about them and still be secure because we're not looking to our efforts and to our works and to our activities to cover us. We're looking to Jesus to cover us. And Jesus provides a far better covering than we can provide ourselves. The scriptures would tell us that he's covered us in his righteousness. He's covered us in his perfection, in his rightness. He's established a new covenant with us so that in Christ we are safe and secure. The safety and security that was enjoyed in Eden, we can experience in varying degrees right here, right now. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's how we triumph over temptation. That's how we live life in a fallen world, listening to Jesus tell us day in and day out, hey, I've got you covered. I've got you covered. You're being tempted, I've got you covered. You fall into sin, you look back up to Jesus, I've got you covered. That's the rhythm of life that we engage in as followers of Jesus, resting in the fact that he's got us covered that he provides a far better covering than we could ever possibly give ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you in this moment for your grace to abound as we process these truths and as we consider perhaps ways in which we have been succumbing to temptation in our lives. And if sin has been solicited from us in the form of unbelief or idolatry or self-centeredness, I pray that you would shed your light upon that so that we might confess freely to you and and if need be to one another knowing that we are in the type of covenant that says we can be honest 
We are safe and secure in Christ. And I pray that the blessing that that is, I pray that it would be realized by each and every heart in this room over these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen.